0: Welcome to Space to Grow. Uh, It's great to have everybody joining us again today. As you all should know by now, we are a podcast that's focused on the intersection of economics, technology, and sustainability in space. And we're gonna need people working together on all of these topics as we move forward. I'm here as always with Charity Whedon. Hey Charity.
1: Hey, and sustainability is my favorite word. Uh, only seconded by the word shiz.
0: <laughs> We're going to hear more about that word in just a little bit. Uh, we had a great uh, wide-ranging conversation just now touching on a lot of things that Charity and I uh, hold dear. So sustainability, certainly, but international relations and um, how to tackle difficult problems and predicting the future. I mean, it, it really, to me, Charity, this, this, this talk really um, hit such a variety of interesting areas. Uh, about things that you and I are interested in, and I think a lot of our listeners are too.
1: Yeah, we definitely had a mind melt, I feel <laughs> with this with this uh, guest and talk about diversity and what that means in the space uh, arena and how it can help.
0: Yeah, so um, you know, the person who joined us today was was uh, was Bavya Lal Charity, and, and and you know her well uh, both in D.C. Uh, so maybe you can give us a little background on uh, on Bavya, who's gonna who's gonna be the guest here.
1: Sure, Bavia is, Dr. Bavia Lau is well known in the space circles and outside the space circles. Uh, she has an extensive background in the space technology, science and public policy and research. And she currently serves as the Associate Administrator for NASA's new Office of Technology, Policy and Strategy, the OTPS. Great name. The office provides data and evidence-driven technology, policy, and strategy advice to NASA's leadership. And before leading OTPS, Dr. Lal served as NASA's acting chief of staff during the administration's transition. And she was also the senior advisor for budget finance and a member of the Presidential Transition Agency review team for NASA and the Department of Defense. Dr. Lal comes from before NASA, the Institute for Defense Analyses, IDA, a uh, well-known FFRDC here in Washington, D.C. She was there for 15 years. She performed analysis for OSDP and National Space Council and for other federal agencies as well. She's published more than 50 papers in peer-reviewed journals. So let's get right
2: into it. Welcome to Bavia.
0: Bavia Lal, welcome to Space to Grow.
2: I am thrilled and honored to be with you guys. I've followed your work for so long, um, Chris. We met years ago. Charity, you are, you are, you are the mother of my daughter who wants to have as a mother. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so jealous, uh, and, and just a delight to be here with you.
0: Thank you so much, and that is just the highest compliment, Charity. I don't know. <laughs>
2: I I really don't
1: deserve it, but um, I mean, she's a genius. You're a genius. It's it's easy to help out when things are all good right (laughs) it's all good
0: (laughs) well mothers and fathers always look better The how is the grass is always greener on the other side so the mother and father is always better in the other house is that well uh Bobby welcome and uh and thanks again for joining us so um you know in in looking back at, at how your year has been I I look back and a little over a year ago in the fall of 2020 you're at the science and technology policy institute where you've been for 15 years so you've been there for a while and then it seems like this last year has just been an incredible change you've you know an election happened and you were put on the the dod and nasa agency review teams moved to headquarters as acting chief of staff uh became acting cto and now aa for office of technology policy and strategy i mean what a shift for you i would think uh how has it been what's the transition been like and uh, you know, you know, I know there's probably a lot to talk about on this, but what's what's the last year been like for you?
2: Yeah, it's been a wild ride. And and you're right. I mean, I have always been a policy analyst. I mean, I was sort of one of those, you know, in God We Trust, all others bring data. So, you know, hardcore policy analysis was my jam. And of course that's how I got to know um you all because I was doing a study on um on orbit servicing assembly and manufacturing and wanting to talk to all of the you know the coolest people doing that kind of work. Um, but yeah, then I came to NASA, first the transition team. It was just such a joy to work with folks like Ellen Stofan and Pam Milroy. And then uh, when they asked me to come to NASA, it was kind of a no brainer. I I had to say yes. And, you know, the first few months, you know, before leadership arrived, you know, our goal was to kind of make sure that, you know, we, you know, we keep things steady. So it was a small team. And we worked together really well. Uh, we made sure that there was continuity of, of purpose across administrations, as you know well. Anytime there's sort of a change in administrations at NASA, there are these wild shifts from we're going to the moon, we're going to Mars. So, you know, um, uh, the transition, because our transition team was so spectacular, we actually had a playbook laid out. So you know, I had my you know, I, I I knew exactly what needed to be done. How do we maintain the you know, how do we maintain the the Artemis program? How do we ensure that we are part of the climate task force? Um, you know, how do we make sure that you know all of the 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 work that's ongoing at NASA doesn't stop? So for example, you know, the selection of the HLS, the human landing system. So just trying to keep you know all the balls in the air until leadership arrived, and I was so happy when they did, and then I was able to move into this new role where. Um, uh, I get to think about uh, technology policy and strategy at NASA. It's a lot of fun. It's it's still pretty new. I'm uh, so still learning the ropes, um, but um, you know, in the in the transition team, we've got a lot of training on how important it is. You know, there's only six of us new people who would show up at the agency, and there's 17,000 civil c- civil uh, uh, staff, right? So you know, the only way we will succeed is by working collaboratively with them, listening to them. Uh, and 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 um, um, you know, working in in coordination. So that's what we did, and it's it it went it went really well, and i'm I'm loving it. I remember
1: you delivering um, a paper research at an FAA industry day. If you recall that, Bavia. And, you know, that's, yeah, that's how long ago. This was as space traffic management on the lips of FAA and looking to move forward. And there was this big report by IDA on space traffic management. Really informative. Um, like you said, you know, bring data, bring data, but you're in a role which requires managing people. What has it been like transitioning from more studious research kind of oriented? lifestyle to more of a political sphere to to be honest and, and inside politics at, at NASA as well.
2: Yeah, it's I mean I'll be honest, it's not my strength. Um um but I think I'm really blessed that the leadership at NASA, so you know, I have to kind of manage up, right? You know, Pam Melroy, Bill Nelson, Susie Quinn, sort of the leadership at NASA. And then I have, you know, then I have my team. Uh, sort of what you know what you call managing down. So I'm just really lucky that both sides have been so kind. And, um you know, I try to you know I try to listen, listen, listen. That's one of the uh, core values um, I have grown up with, and I uh, try to put myself in their shoes and um, you know, ultimately think about what the right thing to do is. And of course, the other thing I also think about is, um, you know, I'm only here for so many years, and I you know, as I like to say, and I think uh, Charity has heard me say that, I like to get shiz done. <laughs> you know, Pam gave me this, Pam Melroy gave me this wonderful card a few months ago. It's sort of this um, sort of uh, Western f- front, um, you know, town. And it says, you know, women getting sh- shiz done for <laughs> millennia. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I think I think folks understand that you know, we have only so much time to get stuff done, and we try to work together.
0: I uh, I don't know what, what our what our policy is on uh, on language on the podcast uh, charity. We haven't talked about that, but I guess
1: we're like we can... HBO here, sure, right? I, I don't see why
0: not. I'm not sure if there's a problem with that, but I like it. Let's get shiz done. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, that 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 global trends in STM and uh, SSA document that charity referenced that that is like a it's like a, a Bible in the Astroscale office, Bavia. Like we would refer to that constantly over the last couple of years uh, and go back to that. It was what, 2018, I think was that, was that one came out. Um, but, you know, you, you talked a little bit about you, uh, you know, your background. I, I wonder if we can, you know, we, we we've started at the current time. I wonder if we can jump back a little bit and tell us about your background. As I was doing some research about talking to you, I, I saw you participating in a lot of, a lot of media, uh, for, for Indian media. Uh, and so, you know, your, your background in India and growing up there and then, and what it, what, what drove you to come over here and, uh, heard about the stories of going to the planetarium and, and what kind of inspired you to do what you're doing now and to, and to come here. So what, what's the background that brought you to where you are?
2: So I actually grew up in a pretty STEM-heavy family. My my father was an electrical engineer. My mom studied math in college, and uh, education was you know uh, you know was was very highly valued. Doing well academically was important, and actually in that context, you know, hard work was was not optional. The idea that one could be gifted was was never even brought up. You know, you did well in school because you worked hard, not because you were smart or had some advantage. And actually, I have found that. Um, and, and by that I mean the idea that hard work can over can overcome innate disadvantages to be my superpowers. So I think this is something I, I credit my parents, uh, you know, teaching me to work really, really hard. Um, culturally, I was, and again, this kind of connects with you know some of the questions you asked before. Culturally, I was brought up not to be disagreeable, and I find that the older I get, the more useful. So I used to, you know, as a as a young, you know professional, I used to say, oh, you know, I'm culturally, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not as combative as, as I could be, I'm not as aggressive, but as I think I get older and I get into positions where I need to get lots of people to agree with me, I find this, again, to be a feature and not a bug, um, and I think I think there's a there's a saying by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, something like, um, uh, you don't have to be disagreeable to disagree, so I kind of have taken that to heart, anyway, so I arrived in the United States as an 18-year-old, two suitcases, full of books it didn't occur to me to pack clothes <laughs> uh and um you know uh, arrived at MIT in I think 1985 when aha was pushing the edge of music videos <laughs> take on me, take me on.
0: my kids love anyway. that song and video actually still we, we go back and watch the old one but yeah go ahead
2: <laughs> yes yes so uh you know yeah watched a lot of uh, music videos at uh, 20 chimneys at, at MIT. I was in the five-year uh, uh, bachelor's, master's program. Uh, and at one point, um, I was about, uh, my undergrad degree was in nuclear engineering and uh, I have a master's in nuclear engineering as well. But I she think just one- says that so lightly. I just had an <laughs> undergrad in nuclear engineering. Yeah, yeah. It's no just,
0: big just by the way, by the way.
2: And actually, now I work on space nuclear power. So, you know, 20 years after, 30 years after graduating, it actually is coming in very handy um, but but I think at some point I, I felt that some of the hardest problems in society and you know if hopefully we have a chance to talk about space sustainability today some of the hardest problems in society climate change being one are not uh, um, maybe may have strong technical roots but they really are policy problems uh, and we need to solve them in more holistic integrative ways so I switched to doing uh, a, a masters in technology and policy also at MIT and then i worked at a consulting firm for uh about 12ish years and then i came to ida so a lot of the stuff uh, you know growing up you know hard work humility my mom always said you know the that a tree laden fruit bows deeper so you know some of these things that at the time was like oh you know you're rolling your eyes because your mom said something and now you're like yeah she was right <laughs> So yeah, so, so a lot of these values are coming in handy as I try to get shoes done. And um, uh, yeah, so that's kind that's of my story. So, so let's fast forward to your current
1: position today as Associate Administrator of Technology Policy and Strategy. And before I, I get to ask you what exactly is this role and how does space sustainability fit into it? I have to ask how many TPS reports have you written so far?
2: So um uh, we are only about a month old and we have i would say written three three reports already so yeah so we, we know we move <laughs> um uh, so so a lot of what we have done so far is so so in our office there is you know a range of things we'd be doing some of it is just providing real time advice to the leadership right so Um, So, you know, a few weeks ago, there was an article that said something like each Blue Origin Origin launch has, you know, so many tons of, you know, uh, CO2 emissions. And uh, our leadership said, can you, you know, how accurate is that number? And so, you know, know, we did a quick back of the envelope. So that's kind of the very short turnaround stuff. But longer term, I mean, our goal really is to be looking at, you know, longer term strategic priorities at NASA. So, for example, the Artemis Moon to Mars program. How do we go deeper into the solar system with humans? Uh, and obviously those are longer term reports, so they're not something you would do very quickly.
1: And so day to day, what is your day like, Bobby? I'd like say full of meetings. Do you go to the White House often? How often do you talk to industry? Like, can you frame what you do day to day?
2: Uh, yes. Yeah. So um, this is this is one of the biggest changes for me at, you know, in my previous jobs in, you know, in think tanks, you just kind of came to work and you read and you wrote and you thought and you did analysis. And, you know, of course, you had you know, a few meetings a day, but now I have between 10 to 15 meetings a day, which is really, I mean, it is it is one of the hardest changes for me. And of course, all the work you, I have to do, you know, before or after the day starts. So, so you know, end up working really long hours. And and what we do in terms, I mean, we it's all of the above. I really try very hard to meet industry because that's where, you know, NASA isn't an island. You um, know, in, in the olden days, uh, NASA invented the technology and it spun out. And I think now we are seeing much, so much more of what we would like to see, more spin in. So we do need to understand what's happening in an industry. And I try to make sure that I have, you know, Good numbers of companies I meet with, both large and small. I'm especially interested in meeting some of the smaller emerging companies. Um, uh, we work very closely with the White House as well, especially uh, recently the National Space Council. We we supported the uh, the first meeting of the National Space Council with the with the Vice President. Uh, worked closely with OSTP. Uh, this National Security Council is actually um, um, has been very interested in in in, in NASA. And in fact, during the during the tr- times of transition, NASA wasn't part of. So there were two parts of the transition team: there was a the domestic team and a foreign policy team. And NASA was part of the foreign policy team, which I was. I mean, obviously, you know, NASA across the board, but uh, typically NASA isn't seen as much as a tool of of, of foreign policy as I think this administration has. And um, you know, diplomacy, um, um, you know, soft power, those sorts of things, we. Obviously, you know we have been doing that for since basically NASA was created, but these are really important priorities now. so we do work closely with um in all parts of the White House uh, to implement some of these administrative administration's priorities. also work with other agencies you know, frequently have discussions with FAA or commerce um, and of course, uh, the one big difference from before is. You know, before I used to talk to, you know, my counterpart, you know, the working, working people, the ones who are at the computers writing code. And now it's uh, more at the leadership level. So um, I'm always thinking, is that the person I should be talking to? Uh, so, again, you know, big switch. Um, and, again, just something I need to get used to.
0: Basically busy is the answer to what her day is like um and i you know bobby i've been a former nasa international relations office employee that i was and uh attache here at the embassy in tokyo for space and and charity doing that as well uh you are preaching to the choir about the importance <laughs> of international relations in space uh, and, we, yeah.
1: and the fact that at the embassy like the whole question who do i talk to? <laughs> It was just oh, a big, geez. wide open. I'll just talk to whoever will talk to me. I
0: guess. Constant, and it's and it's nothing you can even come in with a handbook on. It's just like you just figure it out when you when you've talked to the wrong person and you find someone else and just just make it happen. So uh, great to see that there's such a focus on international relations and in space and and using both the soft power and the and the technology interchange that that comes with that. Um, you you did give us an opening earlier to say something about on-orbit servicing, and, and obviously that's something we want to talk about. This, this discussion is really about the intersection of sustainability and growth in space, and we really think that on-orbit servicing uh, and uh, manufacturing in space is going to drive the future of the orbital economy. What what do you, and I and I, I think I know your opinion on it. What do you think overall about the the economics of of this? Uh we, we know that technology uh is being developed and we know how important that is. What are gonna be the economic drivers that can make this happen? Uh, because that's what's gonna really catapult us into these next steps of the orbital economy. So What kind of incentives can we put out there or what do you think the government can do in collaboration with private sector to take those next steps?
2: Yeah, great question, Chris. I think so. So I think a really good um, analogy might be I don't want to go too far. I don't want to go to the railroad system. I don't want to go to the aviation sector. But just in a really recent in 2006 when NASA started the commercial crew, uh, commercial cargo program. Right at the time, there was no there was no commercial market. There was no commercial. Uh, transportation launch um, uh, market. I mean, well, there was, but it was a very sort of, it was a sliver. And I think by supporting um, a small number of companies, both in terms of developing and maturing their technology, NASA actually helped co-create a market, right? So so just today it was announced that Axiom is going to be taking the second uh, round of private astronauts to the space station. So I don't think we can assume that there would be a servicing market sort of a, a, and by market, I I should be careful. There is, uh, you know, what is a product and who's, who's buying it kind of, you know, just, um, I, that's kind of how I think about it, you know, without using jargon words. Um, And there's only sort of two sets of who, you know, customers, there's governments and there's individuals and businesses. And, for the moment there is not a whole lot of individuals and businesses that can afford um, services uh, but governments can and government my belief is that the government needs to kick start um, some of the some broader servicing activities right so so we know already that companies like northrop Grumman, with their MEV uh, and you know have private you know the business customer right and I think that that may continue and I think in our report on orbit servicing assembly and manufacturing we actually go into sort of you know how 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 far might that market go but I think for other sets of services for example you know propellant depots um, hugely important as we go deeper into the solar system. Uh, will initially be supported by the governments. And as these, you know, as the technology matures, as it falls in price, uh, you know, private customers may emerge. So I think there is this, let's not have this mad dash to to, you know, discovering a private market that may not already exist. Let's work to build it. And I think NASA is very committed to building a, a private space economy. Um, and, you know, and I mean, I personally think that OSAM, honorable serving Assembly and Manufacturing, is, is a foundation on which uh, the future of space is going to be built. I'm glad you brought up
1: OSAM because I feel, you know, the honorable Servicing market is emerging and the assembly and manufacturing side is highly reliant on government. And to be honest, both of them could be as well. Where does NASA see these in as a priority overall OSAM and then breaking it into its individual pieces or everything under the umbrella from active debris removal to manufacturing 3D in space. You know, there's such a wide range of services up there. How does NASA prioritize, look at these various niches?
2: Yeah, you know, there's a saying at NASA. I learned it's like one NASA, my ASA. <laughs> I'm testing all of your, your your language, your your buzzers today. That's
0: good. That's and- good. No buzzers. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So I think uh, so. There isn't sort of a NASA position on on pretty much anything, and and it's it's very siloed. And you know maybe you know maybe some amount of decentralization is good, but you know. But and one thing we are trying to do is um, you know put sustainability more on the front burner. And and many of the technologies we're talking about are pretty major components of you know what may help uh, improve our sustainability in space. So you know servicing. Uh, I mean you know things like you know repair and such. I mean, very important for NASA. I mean, we just went up and we, you know, well, went up is the wrong word. We, uh, we, would, we may have had to repair the Hubble telescope if we couldn't fix it with, with, with software. Uh, so, so we do have assets uh, that we would like to be able to have, you know, go on longer. Um, um, you know, we are launching the James Webb Space Telescope in a few weeks. And it's going a million and a half miles away. There is no, you know, there is no human being who's going to go repair it. And it's an $11 billion asset. If, if one, and it has 300 single points of failure or 400, I don't remember. So, you know, one thing goes wrong and the whole thing is, is down. So it would be, it would have been so nice if James Webb was designed to be repaired, right? So I think our plan is going forward. Every future telescope is is going to be repairable. Uh, So, so NASA is putting in some of these policies. And again, we're talking about servicing um, on, on, on assembly. uh, I mean, you know, the largest assembled thing in space is a space station. We, you know, we know how to assemble uh, things in low earth orbit, uh, obviously with humans and we need to be, you know, we need to get better doing it with, with robotics and, um, I think there's a lot of private activity there on uh, NASA has been supporting them through our STMD through, you know, through an SBIRs and some of those um, award programs um, on a lunar, So, so on the moon, there is a lot of thinking on how we would be robotically assembling um, let's say, you know, solar panels on, on the surface. So there, you know, there, there's thinking in house uh, and on the manufacturing front, you know, Taking regolith from the from the moon and, and and 3D printing landing pads and habitats and all sorts of things so so I think that this is an area whose time has come. I think we no longer need to work so hard to demonstrate the value because it is starting to demonstrate itself and a lot of the you know papers and documents are read in house within NASA. I see that there is you know there is broad acceptance that these are technologies we need to continue to develop and use. And as you as you may know, uh, the the White House is interested in this area as well. There is a uh, OSAM working group that NASA is part of, um, and they're focusing a lot on R and D, which is you know which is fine. That's OSDP's domain, although they have a you know, very you know permissive definition of R and D. So um, again, a really good uh, development last, but not least. I mean, I think uh, Chris, you mentioned ADR, um, you know, this is a, um, I, I personally, of course, believe it is one of the most important things uh, we need to do to keep our sp- space in you know, a safe and sustainable. Um but there's a lot more work we need to do to convince our stakeholders that it's important it's important to invest in and it's important to uh make sure we we remove you know the the objects that will create the brain space
0: yeah, it is so important and we see we see people countries i mean starting to become aware of this and take action on it, tying in the discussion on international relations and this discussion on uh, sustainability and active debris removal. What do you think the prospects would be for an international cooperation of some sort on ADR? Now it's a it's a tough one because I know there's um, there's sensitivities to the technologies that are being developed, but we see things like the internet, like ISS, obviously was an international project that had just an incredible amount of um, cooperation on technology and diplomacy. Uh, we see things like James Webb was is an international cooperative cooperative mission uh so many of the missions that 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 i worked on that charity worked on were were international missions so do you think that there's going to be potentially a place for some kind of servicing um mission whether it's adr or assembly or something that's that's international in nature
2: you know, I um, I don't know. You've already mentioned some of the challenges about international missions, uh, especially in an area like ADR, where, you know, if something goes wrong, who was responsible? Um, so there would be, you know, any anything that happens um, would need to be really carefully negotiated. And, and again, as you said, we have done this before. I mean, the ISS has, you know, six... Partners, more than 15 countries that have participated you know, hundreds of countries who've, who've gone on and put experiments on. So we know it's possible, um, uh, and uh, we just need to, you know, find a way to make it work. But you know, maybe maybe it's not even necessary to have the first thing be international. Maybe the United States needs needs to play a leadership role and work with its private industry to 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 launch an ADR mission. So. Yes, uh, uh, international would be would be um, wonderful, but, you know, m- maybe it's not not necessarily a step one unless, you know, there's, you know, you can tell me if you think that that's that ought to that ought to be a step one, in which case um, I want to I want to hear uh, I want to learn more.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's a great thing to talk about, I think, because we do recognize all of the sensitivities and, and we see some countries starting to take those domestic steps. Japan has a mission focused on an ESA has a mission focused on it. So we see that domestic starting, um, but we know that really solving these issues of sustainability is inherently going to be international in the end. And so I, I, I think that there's going to be a place for that. Uh, we, uh, But recognizing that it it could take some time as well.
1: I'm in the opinion that <laughs> what are the things we can do today and work our way to the hard stuff so people can get Really thrown off, or worried, or scared, or you know, concerned when you're going for the big. Okay, that's you know, 50 upper stage uh, rocket bodies, 80 percent of them are Russian. So, you know, like that is the hard problem, and it's an important problem to solve. But what can we do today? And like you said, Bavia, like what can we do in the next two to three years to put the U.S. on the map uh, for this technology to boost up the industry to provide some confidence in the future of these sort of services. Uh, so Chris, I don't know if we're like at uh, different opinions on this, but we should probably Yeah,
0: I, and that uh, we we but oh it's good to be on different opinions. We, we we're <laughs> supposed to be. That's the we don't ever want to agree with each other all the time. But I, I'll I'll say one more thing before we let our guest actually say something else, Charity. You and I are here talking. Um, the the uh, I Bavia mentioned like the the transitions between administrations. Uh, and i've been a part of several of those at NASA as well, and at one point when one of an administration came in, there was talk about okay we don't the i s s too expensive uh it's not giving us the value we don't need it let's just let 's just get rid of it uh and uh let 's back out of the agreement let's say and it was because of the international partnership what well, that was the reason it sustained because that that new administration that came in. Uh, was convinced in the end, well, it would be really bad, you know, from an international cooperation's perspective if we did this. We are tied in, as Bobby has said, with all of these partners. Uh, so it comes to the point of the, the easy thing, Charity, I think, is going to be to go it alone, always. Do it domestically, do things alone. If we had built a an inter, a space station just in the U.S., it probably would have been easier because we wouldn't have had to get that buy-in. But it also would have been easier to get out of uh as as we've seen things change and again as bavia reference so uh you know there's I, I i see both sides i don't know Bobby, if you want to jump yeah, in yeah
2: actually the so uh, can so i got all this conflict for us will you <laughs> i i i actually will I, by telling your story so so this week uh, uh we had so i run a a space history and policy forum with the national and space uh, museum and and the idea there is we we get a historian to come speak on a topic of interest and, and we ask them questions around the future. So, you know, what can we learn from history? So we had this historian of telescopes. Can you believe there's such a thing as a histor- historian of telescopes? With a historian of telescopes, Robert Smith, come and talk about lessons learned from James Webb for the future of uh, space telescopes. And in, in addition to telling us, you know, about James Webb, he actually talked to us about the superconducting super collider, which is, you know, another mega science project. And the question is, why did James Webb not get canceled, but the superconducting Super Collider did? And his his theory was, and of course, there's lots of reasons, but his theory was that uh, the SSC did not have any international partners. And it was very easy to kill it because it was a domestic political thing. Whereas with the James Webb, with the Canadians, with the, I think the Europeans, uh, it was just, you know, it was too hard. So I'm on, I'm with Chris on this one, even though I like. <sighs> <it more> charity.
1: <laughs> I'll type either, to be honest. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just worried that we're, we're just looking, admiring the problem and saying, Oh, it's really hard. We should think through this. And 10 years goes by without doing anything.
0: Well, a very wise person once told me charity, she just wants to get shiz done. So I'm, <laughs> I'm the getting shiz done. Sorry. Sorry.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the United States may not have the worst offending debris, but we have, you know, sufficiently, uh, debris of sufficient concern that we should be taking some of our, um, you know, our defunct satellites um, out of orbit. So I think there is enough to be done before we move to the international front. Uh, I think my point was more, um, um, you know, maybe if we do it one of with one of our traditional partners, Japan, for example, that would be... And that would be something that would be highly doable.
1: I was thinking, you know, if we can develop, we, the U.S., develop a COVID vaccine within a year, surely (laughs) we can do, you know, make a dent in the debris uh, issue uh, for, you know, the sustainability of space in the long term. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, So moving on to a different topic, but related, Bavia, is about, coming up with innovative solutions and ideas, and that really needs diversity, right? So you come from a really diverse background of think tank, industry, you know, government, right? Like a well-rounded background, you know, technical and policy. How has diversity uh, helped you along your career and helped make, you know, decisions and pulling innovative ideas, and how is diversity gonna help NASA in the future?
2: Yeah, I don't think NASA can do a whole lot, lot without diversity and as you have recognized it isn't just diversity of sort of you know race gender it's diversity of 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 the fields you come from. I think one thing diversity allows you to do I mean my background as you know is is much more nuclear engineering and policy analysis and I'm coming into the space world. And so what that forced me to do is to think from first principles. Um you know I I wasn't bought into the into the into the traditional um uh, ways of thinking about space um uh, and again there's you know mir- myriad examples of how disruptive thinking comes from the outside the CubeSat, one of the most disruptive developments in space didn't wasn't developed by mainstream space entities it came from actually a, 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 a polytechnic right a, a a community college um reusable rockets again did not come from the mainstream sector so i think we we Absolutely. I mean, our innovations will come from diverse thoughts, um, not from, you know, trying to repeat what we've done before.
0: Yeah. And and it and it takes, um, you know, diversity in uh, in fields and disciplines and areas and then diversity in in nations and in people and and seeing that diversity of uh, of growth. I mean, NASA has not been known to be the most diverse of agencies, (laughs) I think, traditionally uh, when you're thinking about, you know, Gender, ethnic diversity as well, but seeing that grow, I think, I think, I think there's been positive trends. I mean, what would, would you agree?
2: Yeah, uh, and again, I mean, uh, just even talking about you know gender and and race, racial diversity. I mean, the space sector is terrible at it, and I mean, engineering as a community is is pretty bad. You know, when I came to MIT as a freshman, it was you know, twenty five percent of MIT was women and it's now i think about 40 to 50% so we've made you know we've made large strides um, but there but, but not across the board uniformly you know, engineering still is 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 not um as 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 good as scientific fields and aerospace engineering in particular uh, needs a lot more uh, lot more work and at nasa you know we have you know we have put together diversity initiatives um di is a diversity equity and innovation is a pretty core um value of the of the administration as well and it's it's uh, i mean if you read the national space council meeting last week um you know the the vp talked quite a bit about STEM education and diversity so i think there's a lot of effort to you know to correct and um you know we just need to keep working at it
0: yeah i mean awareness is the first step on any of this stuff to address any of these issues whether it's diversity or space debris or anything making sure we're aware till we know what to do so uh we're we're closing to the end. We we do like to uh uh try some um more relaxed questions or more kind of put you on the spot type questions. Yay! So you you're ready for that, right? And and we're testing out a couple. So we're gonna we're gonna try a couple on you, Bobby, if you're okay with that. So <laughs> I'm ready for anything. Uh, all right, all right. I like it. Uh so the first one, we're obviously recording this and we're gonna do a little bit of a predictions pool. So predictions on a few of the big questions that, that you're working on. So I'm going to ask a couple. What's just the first thing that comes to your mind of, of when, of when these things will happen. Okay?
2: okay. So when,
0: when will the next human step foot on the moon?
2: I have I, 2025. I have to give this answer. 2025.
0: <laughs> 2025. Uh <laughs> When will the first person it's, step foot Chris, on Mars Chris,
1: can I correct that question a little? Bit? Yes. When will when will the first human to return to the moon and as a woman
0: get there? I think Only that would be the first was... 20, woman. Yeah.
2: 2025. 20, I'm telling Same you. Same answer.
0: Same yes. answer. How about the first person to step foot on Mars?
2: Ah, that's a that's a hard question. I would say in the 2040s if we are lucky.
0: Mm. Okay. No Matt Damon on the Mars yet. Uh, how many countries do you think will join the Artemis Accords when it's done?
2: I, I hope more than 100. I, I hope the whole world. Um, because if you look at the principles of Artemis Accords, it's, 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 it's out of space treaty. It's how we behave well. It's how we take care of the environment, how, how we take care of each other. There is really nothing controversial in, in the Artemis Accords.
0: JWST, you mentioned, is launching this year. What do you think, what's your prediction? What's the coolest discovery that we're gonna find out from JWST?
2: I think we will find out. So so as you know, after Big Bang, there was 200 years of nothingness. And then the first galaxies began to emerge. I think the James Webb Space Telescope will help us understand what happened in the time after after Big Bang. And that kind of blows your mind that we can go 13.8 billion years back in time and see and see what happened and why so 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 that's i think what uh, the main goal of uh james webb Webb space telescope is but personally i i would just love it if uh, if the webb telescope discovered an exoplanet which had life on it that would be pretty awesome
0: that would be pretty great okay good good answers we're going to come back and check uh, and we'll can, can we book you for let's say 2041 so we can you check on that it. mars that mars question
2: Yes, let me, let me get my
1: phone. Let me put that in the <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I have a zinger for you too, Bavia. Um, we're talking about partnerships this year on the podcast. And what does it take to have a good partner in space? I'd love, I'm sure you are well read. You, watch, you read science fiction, you watch science fiction movies. I know for a fact. Uh, <laughs> who do you think has been the best partner? Science fiction-wise, uh, you know, um, let me think about this. Yeah, is it Spock and Kirk, for example? Uh, you know, Armstrong and Aldrin. Uh, in in science fiction, and Armstrong and Aldrin, of course, not science fiction, but <laughs> science fact, who do you think has been really good partners and why in science fiction?
2: Oh, my goodness, that's a hard question. Um, you know... I think in I, I am a I'm I'm a Star Trek girl. I'm not a Star Wars person. Um, I would say I mean you already you know if you hadn't mentioned Kirk and Spock I would have said that. But I guess I would say Luke Skywalker and Han Solo are pretty cool partners. Uh, you know they keep each other on their toes and um, uh, you know have great adventures together.
1: Leaving Chewy out of the question. Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> yeah. Don't tell us Star tell Wars. Chewy. <laughs> yes, love
0: tell it. That. Uh, Charity, I'm sure you would say someone from The Expanse as your answer. There's some kind of partnership group there that we could look at now. I wouldn't put you on the they, spot.
1: They were already always at odds. Although the yeah, that crew. There's that was partners, a good crew. was a
0: crew, yeah.
1: I love you, a good, well functioning crew, right? With different personalities and they all do their you know, their own thing, but together they're more than the some of the parts. Yeah. That's yeah. what I like. Yep. No,
0: that's that's great for that's a great lesson for life and a good way to close it. Uh Bavia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Really enjoyed the conversation.
2: It was it was an honor and a delight. Uh, you guys are are some of my favorite people in the world. I wish you all the best in all the work that you do, and and, and let's stay in touch. Bye bye. Sounds
0: great, Fabio Thank you so much. Bye.
2: Bye-bye. Bye bye.